Hello and welcome to Fairy and Fantasy 25. This time Professor Olson concludes his discussion of George MacDonald's The Princess and the Goblin. I want to start today actually by commenting on, uh, or going back to a comment that was actually made, uh, sort of tossed off in the middle of the Saturday uh, section. In fact, it was just a phrase used in the context of a different discussion. Um, But I I wanted to come back to it because I think it's important um, for this story especially, and not just because it's one of my personal pet peeves, though it happens to be. Um, And that is the phrase, blind faith. Because I think it's a very interesting and important question in this story. That is, we were talking on Saturday about um, about faith and belief, and what an important uh, what an important theme that obviously is, and grows to become more and more over the course of this story. Um, and I, I, I mean, I was been interested to see uh, that you guys on the discussion board have been having some discussions about that too. That is a very good thing. Uh, by the way, if you're behind in your discussion board posts, there's no time. That is quite like the present for the making up of your discussion board posts. Um, yes, the ideal goal is that you would keep up with the discussion board posts and that your conversations and discussions on the board would be contemporaneous with our discussion. That is best. Uh, that is the best case. However, there certainly are cases which may, might exist between best and worst, which is the absence of posts entirely. Um, if one cannot attain best, uh, one need not resign oneself to worst, I think. So, uh, uh, yeah. Martin? Um, I don't think I've missed one, but is there any way on Blackboard to like, find like, a number of how many times we've posted? I remember on the Tolkien site. That's a good question, and I'm I suspect the answer to that is yes, but from the student interface, I'm not quite sure how to do it. Let me see if I can figure that out, because that would be a good thing to be able to do. Um, that is, Marta's question was, can, is, is there a place where you can actually check up on the number that you have done so that you can have a better idea of where you stand? And I don't know the answer to that. I will look that. Good question. Other questions? Then back to blind faith. The adjective blind is often applied to the noun faith, uh, and I believe that that tends to be done often quite unthinkingly. Um, What do we mean by that? When somebody is talking about faith and refers to faith as blind faith, what exactly do we mean by that? In what sense is faith blind? I'm not, but when I say that that phrase is sort of a pet peeve of mine. I'm not saying I don't think that that adjective uh, ever can be appropriately applied to the noun. I think it can be. Uh, but it isn't always. And as I said, I think it tends to be done thoughtlessly. Yeah, Taylor? Faith, despite the fact that you have no actual evidence to support what it is you're putting faith in. It might be a roundabout way to say it, but... <laughs> evidence to support what you're believing. Right. Um... Yes, yes and no, yes and no. Look at Irene. Look at Irene and Irene's thread. When Irene is following her thread, is she exercising blind faith? Partially, yes. What is blind and what is not blind? And what's, I mean, because I think that we can say there's a sense in which it's blind faith, but there's also an important sense in which it's not blind faith. Robbie, what were you thinking? I was going to say that it's not blind faith, 
it's both. It's both because she doesn't know where she's going, but she knows who is sent by. So that I think is the, that's the crucial distinction. It is blind, and she has no idea where she's going, right? So yeah, every step that she's taking is in a sense a step of blind faith. She, in the sense, she, she can't see. I mean, she's literally in the dark. Remember, she is going through the goblin tunnels without a light source. And when they drop, when she meets Curdy, and Curdy lights a torch, and and then has to drop the torch for fear of waking up the goblin king and queen, which he then proceeds to do anyway. Um, uh, but anyway, so after they wake up and they dash the torch to the ground and they run off, they're again running blind. They can't see anything. Right, so so she is literally walking, not knowing if she's going to hit her head or smash into a wall or what's going to happen. Right, so in that sense, yeah, she's blind to what's around her and she's just proceeding in faith. But, well, how is, did you phrase the other side of that, Robin? I think she, I think she said, I said, she knew who sent it. Yeah, she knew who sent it. In that sense, her faith is not blind. What's it based on? What's her faith based on? Go on. Uh, she knows her grandmother gave her the thread, said, I'll be on the other end, and she can feel it tightening as she goes through. She knows who's on the other end of the thread, and she knows who gave her the thread. Why does she trust the thread? Because she trusts her grandmother. Does she have reason to believe that her grandmother... A, is capable of taking care of her, and B, is inclined benevolently towards her? She certainly thinks that she does. Right? And in that sense, her faith is not at all blind. It is based on the evidence of what she has seen from her grandmother and her grandmother's actions towards her. And also, of course, corroborated by her father, the king, who alone also recognizes the existence of the grandmother and has given, when she, when Irene brings it up to him, which she does after her first meeting, because you remember even after that first meeting, she's not 100% sure that it really happened, the meeting. Especially since when she tries to go back, she doesn't find her the second time. But when she talks to her King Papa, as he is always called throughout the story, um, he appears to confirm, or at least not to discredit, the fact of her existence. I think that this is a really crucial distinction um, in thinking about the blindness of faith, especially the blindness of faith that Irene shows. Um, It is not in that absolute sense blind. She has evidence that she should do what she's doing. She just can't herself see where it's going. And we see her come to a crisis of faith. Right when she finds that the thread has led her down into the goblin tunnels and into what seems at first to her to be not a blank wall, it's a pile of rubble, but a dead end, anyway. And it looks like her thread, which she trusted in because she trusted her grandmother, has betrayed her and led her into the goblin tunnels and abandoned her there. Now, of course, she gets through that moment of doubt But the doubt is in, ultimately, in her grandmother, right? And that's sort of the issue. Why would her grandmother's thread do this to her? Um, uh, One moment when the issue of blindness actually is is raised explicitly in connection with Irene's uh, belief is a, a, a passage which I think is really interesting. This is page 108, near the end of chapter 14. 
when she, this is the first time when the stilt-legged cat jumps in the window and she unwisely takes off and for some reason runs up the mountain and then immediately realizes that was a really bad idea, right? And she's stuck, now again, it's dark. So she's stuck in the dark on the mountainside and afraid of what happens? How'd she get back? Yeah, the moon, the lamp. Um, her grandmother's <coughs> lamp, shining. Um, and she sees it there, the one that guides her pigeons home through the darkest night. Uh, dark as it was, there was little danger now of choosing the wrong roads in the second paragraph there. And, which was most strange, the light that filled her eyes from the lamp, instead of blinding them for a moment to the object upon which they next fell, enabled her for a moment to see it, despite the darkness. By looking at the lamp and then dropping her eyes, she could see the road for a yard or two in front of her. And this saved her from several falls, for the road was very rough. Um, that, I think, is a really interesting moment. Of course, one thing which is being plainly communicated to us there is that this is not just a normal life. Right? This is not merely a... A, you know, a, a ray of perfectly normal photons going into her retinas, right? Because, of course, he points out, we, we know how perfectly normal photons would work or what effect they would have upon your retinas in this situation, right? If you're looking at a bright light on a dark night and you're staring right at the bright light and then you look down, you're not going to be able to see anything else. Whereas this light has exactly the opposite effect. And when she looks at this light, it enables her, briefly to see around her. Briefly. Why? What's the effect of the, the briefness of the clarity of her vision when she looks down? Okay. She has to keep looking at the light back. She has to, yes, exactly. It will only enable her to see if she keeps looking up at it. It's not like it permanently changes her vision and now she can see in the dark all by herself. She can't. She only can when under the influence of that light. So as long as she keeps looking at the light, then when she looks down, she can see. That is far from being a consequence of blindness, it opens her eyes. It enables her to see the world around her. And this is something that we can see consistently all the way through in her conversations with her grandparents. Only, she only has one. Sorry, with her grandmother, and in the conversation she has with uh, with Curdy and Curdy's mom, and Curdy's mom and Curdy have later on. That is, when she is seeing her grandmother, she is seeing what is really there. Ludie would come up, and she would be blind as Curdy was blind. That blindness comes as a consequence of not believing, and that's clearly part of the framework of this story as we see the people, and again, and the, the grandmother's language is very clear on this point. It is not that you can see me because you believe and other people wouldn't be able, uh, but that is, you're seeing something which isn't really there, something beyond reality, but rather, if somebody else came up, as Curdie does, and would, does not believe, the things would still be there, but they would not see what they would see, the empty garret that they would see, that would be the illusion. That would be the unreality. Whereas Irene's eyes are open to what is really there. Again, this, that, that's, that's the emphasis that the grandmother makes when she talks about that. Pardon? Well, I think, um, yeah, the grandmother definitely opens the, uh, I, 
Irene's eyes, but also I think that's the chapter um, title, literally, Irene Behaves Like a Princess. I think um, her grandmother also helps facilitate Irene's growth, because at least in that chapter and also by the end of the book, Irene has grown up considerably for an eight-year-old, I think she's supposed to be. So. Yeah, yeah no, and, and that's explicitly commented on at the end, right? That the way she acts is, you know, she has grown up a very great deal, uh, and people really notice it at the end. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and I think that this is an important thing. When she begins the story, Irene is, I was going to say by far, actually I'm not quite sure that's true. But anyway, she is the most ignorant person in the entire story. I mean, if you think about it in terms, and I say that kindly, I'm not insulting her, I mean, but she, she, lacks, she's the, she lacks more information than anybody else. Right? Um, we think about it in terms of what the three worlds we've been talking about, right? The ground floor and the upstairs and the downstairs worlds. She is the only one who knows only the one world, right? The downstairs world is the only one she's aware of. She's not yet discovered the upstairs world and has been deliberately kept in ignorance of the downstairs world. Now, there are others, as I said, it's not quite fair, I think, to say that she is by far the most ignorant character because there are other close competitors to her in ignorance. Who's the second most ignorant person in the story? Ludi. Ludi, absolutely. <laughs> Clearly. Ludi is only slightly less ignorant. What is this, that slight piece of information that she has that Irene doesn't have? There are goblins. That there are goblins. Though her information there is very limited. Right? She doesn't even know the difference between the goblins and the goblin creatures. She's aware <laughs> of the existence of the downstairs world, but... She certainly doesn't like to think about it and knows almost nothing about it. It is to her very strange, obviously, enormously upsetting. It's not that she disbelieves it. She knows it exists. Um, it is a reality which is to her a fearful reality, not just because she's personally afraid of it, because it's one of her primary duties as Irene's nurse to not only protect her from it, not in the sense of like fighting off goblins, as we see she does not, she's not very effective on that front, but that uh, in the sense of by protecting her from knowing about it, right? Insulating her from even from the awareness of the downstairs world. This is why she's always trying to shut Curdy up when they first meet, and he's cheerfully singing his songs about goblins, which are protecting her in the time when he is saving her and singing his rhymes, which are driving the goblins away. She's trying to stop him singing rhymes about goblins, right? We can sort of see the kind of conflict here. Yeah, Dan? I don't know how much this matters, but I was wondering when I was reading whether or not Luis was it's a really good question. Um, I don't think she's very old because there's the questions about she gets all offended when um, uh, when Irene says that the grandmother is more beautiful than she is, and you know, and, and Irene is like, "Oh, but you're very pretty, and if you were ten times prettier than you are, then a king would marry you." And um, she's only ten percent of a queen, right? She, she's which is still fine, perfectly fine. She is admirably attractive for a peasant woman. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <coughs> so I mean, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it's really hard to fix people. We were talking on Saturday about trying to guess Curdie's age. We were guessing twelve or thirteen. Rereading the end of the story, I'm not sure we were quite right. That is, his physical stature seems to be a little bigger than that, but. I saw that there was a section where... Does it say? When uh, Ludi and Irene first meet him, he was described as a boy of 12 or 13. Well, there we go. That must be why I'm thinking that. <laughs> I'd forgotten the passage, but that's the number I had in mind. Okay. I'm just 
No, I mean, I guess we have reason to think he's strong. He is quite strong. I mean, like the way he carries her running down the mountain, and then the way he lifts her up to her dad, which is on horseback. Both of those are like, I mean, I guess, you know. Back then, he's a mother, 12 year olds yeah, were really robust. Really he's, he's, he's a really ripped 13 year old. Like, okay. <laughs> Perfectly plausible under the circumstances. Absolutely. Yeah, Kurt? Back to the topic of ignorance. I would contest that Looney knows more than I read because while she does know one more fact, she also knows of, of she doesn't know anything about princesses, but thinks she does, and that where she's got a sort of negative knowledge. Where yeah. she thinks she knows a great many things that are actually false. No, that's true. But in I mean, a sense. Yeah, yeah. No, Irene, in that sense, kind of knows more, like by nature, knows more about the downside. Like, that is to say, put this another way, Ludi is even ignorant about the, the ground floor world. She doesn't really know fully how that operates. Um, and in a sense, Irene has a better grasp on that, as we can see when she meets her dad, and her dad, you know, confirms. I mean, you know, he's a king too, so he understands. Um, you know, it's hard for Ludi. Remember, the grandmother is never critical of Ludi. Right? She doesn't say, like, and this is, so, this is why Ludi is a really wicked person. Right? Or, like, where Ludi has some serious moral shortcomings, um, you know, which I'm glad to see that you do not have. She says she, she believes as much as she can. She just she can't believe it. And remember, that's the phrase that Curdy keeps using, too, when he's having his problem with Irene and her stories about her grandmother. I can't believe that, he says. And it's interesting that, of course, that's the phrase that people use. I can't believe that. And McDonald is, is, in this story, I think, putting some pressure on that commonly used phrase. Um, that is, he's taking it quite literally. Yes, Ludi cannot. It is, it, she is not capable of believing. And Kirby, well, he gets mad at himself because I, I'm not quite sure that his statement, I can't believe that, is quite literally true. As it seems to be quite literally true for the movie. That is, at least he sort of seems to think later on that perhaps he at least should have made, an effort, made more of an effort at believing than he did, and that it wasn't mere incapacity. Curdy's situation is an interesting one. His belief situation, right? Again, anything in terms of the two worlds for him, he's. Perfectly comfortable in the ground floor world. He is equally comfortable in the downstairs world. Right? The downstairs world to him is as mundane as the ground floor world. He is totally at home in both places. He is the, the most, of all of the characters in the book, he is the most perfectly, I don't know, what, amphibious character between those two worlds? The downstairs and the upstairs? He's at, he's at home in both places. In fact, we see him, we, more often we see him spending time in the lower place, he seemed to pretty much divide his time, day and night, between the upstairs, and, or not the upstairs, but the ground floor and the downstairs. However, he is not only ignorant of the upstairs world, but actively resistant to it. He can't accept it. He can't believe it. And you think even of the way in which, when his mom tells Curdy her upstairs story, the story of her deliverance from the goblins that time, back before he was born. In fact, right before he was born, we were told. The implication being she is actually pregnant with Curdie at the time. 
possibly explaining why she had this upstairs experience in the first place. Um, but anyway, so when she is talking about relating that experience and Curdy is responding to it, they're talking about how strange it is, how hard to believe it is. You remember, it's interesting that the downstairs world, the goblin tunnels are completely mundane to him. It's strange. It's, there are things about that that are kind of otherworldly, but it's not to him at all strange. It is not to him at all other. It's part of his world. But the upstairs world is different, and he's completely resistant to it. Well, almost completely. He ceases to be completely resistant to it, to it when he's talking to his mom. Right? But it's not just that he refuses to believe it until she tells her story. His own confidence in his doubt is already wavering by then. Why is it? Why is Curdy uncomfortable with his doubts about the upstairs world prior to hearing his mom's story? Because given um, what he knows about Irene and her character, um, she wouldn't be lying to him. And he doesn't know how to um, justify that in his head with the fact that he's not seeing what she wants him to see. Yeah, yeah. On the one hand, he can't believe, he uses that phrase, he can't believe because he saw with his own eyes. There was nothing there. And so he says, I can't believe. No matter who says what, I can't, I refuse to believe. A thing which is contrary to what I've seen myself. And the terms that his mom puts it in are exactly those that Taylor was using. Look, what you're saying, the, the, the logical consequences of your statement that I don't believe that this grandmother thing and this thread thing is true. Now again, it's not that he has no reason for that. Why does he disbelieve in the thread? He can't feel it. He can't see it. Now, it's already invisible. Nobody can really see it. In some light, she can kind of see it a little bit. But it's mostly invisible. But she can feel it. He can't even feel it. I mean, he's, he's like his hand is going right through where, where it is. Right? He's standing there in the garret as she's like saying, I'm sitting in my grandmother's lap, and there's no grandmother. There's nothing there that he can see. So it's, again, it's not, he's got excellent evidence in support of his doubts. But the way that, and, and that would seem to be an unanswerable objection. Since I tried to touch the thread and I confirmed there's nothing there, and I was in the room and I could tell there was no grandmother there, therefore I have proved this to be untrue. That would make sense, it seems. But again, the way that the mom says it, the terms that she puts it in is, by saying that, what you were saying is, what choice are you making? What choice? Is, she says you, you've made a choice in doing this. He's not trusting Irene. He's, he's not just doubting his eyes, he's doubting her. There are two difficult to reconcile things. Again, it's not that he doesn't have excellent reason for doubting her story, but at the same time, he also has excellent reason for believing her story. 
What is the evidence supporting her story? It is not that of his own hands and eyes. But what is it? Katie, what is it? Yeah. He can't explain how Irene, Irene of all people, the eight-year-old girl who didn't even know the tunnels existed, just, you know, a couple months ago, that Irene, in the dark, with no light source, found her way from the house straight into where he was being held captive, and then out through a passage which he had not found, through an escape tunnel that he didn't know existed. He cannot explain that. That's a very good piece of evidence that she's telling the truth. But that's not even the one that his mom emphasizes most. What's the other one? She's a princess. <laughs> and it's not just, though, though actually they address that. He, he, he tries to refute that. There are princesses who tell lies. What's her answer to that? Not this princess. Not this princess. <laughs> yeah. Not this princess, and you know it. Oh. Right? Remember the conversation that she has with Ludie at the end, when Irene doesn't just get offended, but is actually going to fire Ludie? Right? And, and this on the same principle. You asked me to tell you the truth. I have told you the truth. You don't believe me. And you refuse to believe me unless I stop telling you the truth. If you are unwilling to accept that what I am telling you is the truth, but I'm telling you it, it's the truth, then we're done here. Right? You are choosing your own preconceptions, your own concepts of what you will accept as true or false. You're choosing that over your trust in me and over our relationship. Therefore, that's your choice. The consequence is going to be then we can't have that relationship anymore if you, if you cannot trust me. Right? And that's, those are the terms that Curdy's mom brings it up to Curdy as well. You have an excellent reason for believing her even other than the evidence of your rescue and escape from the tunnels. Would she do that? Based on what you know of her, would she do that? And he never said that he thought she was lying. Ludi accuses her of lying, of telling stories. He doesn't say, oh yeah, I think she was lying through her teeth the whole time. He, said, he admits that he could tell that she believed it. But he believes that she must be mistaken, that she must be seeing things. So she's not a liar, she's just crazy. I guess that's why. But again, the way, in the end, it's the choice between his own evidence, what he has seen, and what he has concluded. What he has concluded can and can't be. And the mom throws this back at him at the end when she tells her story, and then says, but you'll probably say that I'm lying too. And Curdy's like, oh, why would you say that? How could you say that I would accuse you of lying? And she's like, what's the difference? Right. Um, this is, again, I bring all of this up not only because I think it's, a, it's a, you know, clearly in the second half of the story, especially, like this is a major focus of this story, um, but this is all in 
all in relation to the, to the, to the blind faith idea. I actually think that this story takes a really close look at that concept. And one of the things that it's really interested in is the nature of faith and belief and how that actually operates. And, and this is not just sort of faith in faith in God or faith in supernatural things, but even faith in people. Um, and the, sort of the similarity between those things. Um, Curdie's faith in his mom, Curdie's faith in Irene, Irene's faith in her grandmother, Irene's faith in her, uh, in her king papa, those are not fundamentally different things. Tell me what we can say. Well, I mean, the, the whole concept of evolution, and I was just curious about the only one who was seeing it, um, but especially the first time you see the grandmother and she's younger again, yeah. I just kept thinking, like, in comparison to other fairy tales, when you have not only an illusion that clearly other people can't see, but it changes that dramatically, I kept thinking, like, is she secretly going to turn into a bad guy? Like, <laughs> That is, we can do allegory. That is, one can do allegory. It's like 
not illegal in this country, but we have to be, we have to be careful about what we're doing and we have to know what we're doing when we're doing it. Um, McDonald was a Christian. Is this book interested in what could be called Christian themes? Yeah, sure. But, but I think we have to be careful. We have to be careful here, as we even have to be careful, as we even will have to be careful when we get to C.S. Lewis. As even there, things won't be quite so simple, I think, as sometimes they can be seen and sometimes they are taken. Um, I will warn you in advance. I am going to make the argument, as Lewis made the argument lots of times, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is not an allegory. It is often called an allegory but it is called an allegory by modern people who don't know what allegory is. (laughs) It contains symbolism, this is true, and it's not an allegory. Um, And we talked about the definition of allegory last time. Um, This story, I don't... It's actually, in some ways, I find this story more tempting than the Chronicles of Narnia to allegorize. And we were, as we were discussing a bit last time, not only can you do the whole, like, grandmother is God thing... Uh, that her pigeons seem allegorical too. I'm, I'm sorry, like her pigeons. Her pigeons. You know, I've been talking about like you know your 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 like fairy alarm that starts going off when you like you know meet strange people in the woods in these stories. Um, you know, as a medievalist, my allegory alarm starts going off like with that with that line about like I put out this lamb so that my pigeons can find their way home in the darkest night. And then in the next chapter. She's like lost on the mountain and she's like, Oh, I see the light that the pigeons can find their way home in the darkest night. So no, in the darkest night I can find my way home. I'm like, you know, my allegory warning is like <laughs> So I mean like I can totally see it. I can totally see it. But I I in the end, I don't think it's quite safe. Um, because if it really is an allegory in the, in, the, in, in the traditional sense. What that means is then we should be able to interpret all of these things in that sense. That there should be some kind of divine or explicitly Christian significance to all of those, to like her spinning wheel and, and, and the ring and the rose fire uh, and, and, and the, their familial relationship. Familial relationships are always important in allegory. Um, but I don't see that. I don't think it really works. And the more, the more I do that, it's fun to do it. But the more I do it, the more I feel like I'm, 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 I'm inventing uh, rather than reading. It doesn't really seem to me to work consistently across the whole, across the whole thing. Um, I don't think, in the end, um, that it is in that sense a Christian allegory. Though again, like, is it interested in themes? That Christianity is interested in? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, is the grandmother, in some sense, tied to er, the divine, the supernatural? Sure. There's certainly something supernatural about her. Is she God? Is she Christ? No, I don't think so. <laughs> but see that. But but you have to be able to say that in an allegory. If you can't say that, it's not an allegory. It's just a story, which suggests parallels and makes these kinds of statements. And I think, and also the other thing that I would say briefly, belief 
is an important fairy story theme, quite independent of religious faith or Christianity. Does there have to be, though, a God character necessarily in an allegory? Because I don't remember Pilgrim's Progress very well, but I don't know if there wasn't that. Yeah, Pilgrim's Progress is a very, uh, uh, well, there are better illustrations of allegory because Bunyan's concept of allegory is a little, the way he uses allegory is a little different from sort of a traditional kind of allegory. Um, the, the main difference is that uh, Bunyan's characters in the Pilgrim's Progress know full well that they're allegorical <laughs> and will explain their own allegorical signification, which allegorical characters usually don't do. Uh, that, uh, that kind of interpretive line crossing doesn't, I mean, normally it's the audience does that work. Um, I mean, they, they can be they can be transparent. Um, you know, like, hi, my name is Avarice. You know, like, can I get you involved in my pyramid scheme? Like, that's, <laughs> that's a perfectly transparent allegory, but it's still not crossing that line, that interpretive line. Bunyan's characters do that all the time. Uh, um, it's actually, I, I, I find that very charming uh, in Bunyan's allegory. But, um, but no, no, it's not that there has to be. But I think if this were, if we were to read this book allegorically, we'd have to have one. Um, because, I mean, it seems to me that if it's an allegory, that's what it's an allegory of. Um, with the whole faith thing and the thread thing. And the, and the, uh, at least, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's where I would go. If I were allegorizing it for fun, that's, it's, it's hard for me to see going in a different direction. Yeah, Jordan? Um, what, I, what I would deal with this issue is um, there's a conspicuous absence of references to God and Church in such a, a book that deals with Christian themes. So clearly, women, I think we're meant to do something with it. But I think we're supposed to assume that, um, that that's not an issue for the people here. So perhaps we use the term higher power, which implies God, but we don't do it for the, for the fairy. Uh, it's especially safe in this story because she is, of course, upstairs. Yeah, exactly. Right. So we're supposed to extrapolate that if there's a higher power of this sort in this world, where God is the president, the world of God is the Yeah, and I guess what I was thinking just a minute ago when I said that belief is a theme, in, is a fairy story's theme anyway, quite independent of Christianity or Christian themes. This, I, I think in a sense, Tara comes back to what you were talking about. That is, what you believe and what you accept and whom you trust, those are dominant fairy tale themes. Now, of course, as you point out, the answer is not usually trust everyone, believe appearances, right? That often disbelief is a really important thing. Um, you know, whether you're Hansel and Gretel, being like, mm, maybe there's something fishy about this, like, cake house. Uh, or rather, they should have that response, though they don't initially. Um, or, whether it's, uh, or whether it's, you know, beauty taking quite a long time to tumble to the fact that this ugly beast actually is the same as the gorgeous prince that she's been dreaming about uh, ever since she's been there. Um, but, but there's still one can say broadly, this theme of trust and belief is still a very important one. And I think in that sense, we can see MacDonald following along 
in that. It, it, this is not just him being like, I am a Christian and I would like to talk about faith. Therefore, I think I shall write this story in which we, uh, we, we, we do the faith thing symbolically in this story. But rather, he's sort of taking that idea which is there and he's looking at it sort of, in, he, he's, he's examining it uh, and presenting it in this way, basically his own one way, one thing anyway that I think that seems to me that this story is doing is giving a kind of examination, a kind of, uh, a kind of exploration of the idea of faith and belief. What, what is it? What is it based on? How does it work? Um, what, are the, what are the advantages and disadvantages of you know, living like Irene or Curdy or Ludi or several of the other sort of illustrations that we have. I mean, I think that he's, he's kind of examining it pretty, pretty closely. Um, we have about five minutes left, so I want to I wanna, I wanna make sure we get to the end of the story. Um, the big goblin drowning scene. Uh, after this surprisingly bloodless battle, right, in which we're fighting ferociously for quite a while with apparently no casualties on either side, Right, lots of foot stomping and rhyme uttering and uh, sitting on people's heads. Uh, but I believe a total body count of zero uh, until the water comes in and starts washing up all the bodies. Um, but that's interesting, right? We have, we have. I think doesn't. Am I overlooking something? Does somebody die in the battle that I've forgotten about? I mean, even goblins. Well, the goblin creature is killed. Curdy stabs to death the goblin creature with his pocket knife. Right? <laughs> He's got a sword for that whole final scene, and it keeps saying that it keeps stabbing at all the goblins. I'd assume that if he's not going for their heads, which he probably wouldn't, and he's not necessarily going for his feet, he's stabbing at them, and some of them are going to want to death. Maybe we're, maybe we're supposed to imagine a, 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 a string of bloody goblin corpses in the wake of the chanting and uh, gyrating, by which I believe he means spinning. That's what a gyroscope does. Uh, I restrain your imaginations there. Yeah, he's, he's, I think spinning and whirling with his sword and his song and his foot stamping, you know, nail-studded boots. Uh, maybe, again, you know, maybe, maybe there's, there's sort of like a discreetly not described, but we are invited to imagine, if we would like to, uh, you know, mutilated goblin corpses behind Curdy. <laughs> Maybe, though, <laughs> though we get an awful lot of corpses afterwards. Yes, but it's still, it's natural drama. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was natural. Natural disasters are okay. Well, we have to imagine the fact that it's like stacking up corpses. Right, right. It's possible. It's possible. Did the goblins drown? The goblins drown, yeah. I mean, I mean, you drown, you die, you leave a body behind? Yeah, and the, and the idea of that, I mean, like, with like the whole cellar is a washing corpses, right? And they're coming in and identifying the bodies later on. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty gruesome at the end. Irene makes a face, right? 
oh, I shudder at the corpses of the goblins that are washing up, like, in her house. Right? I mean, the, the ground floor of the house, terra cognita itself, is now, like, the goblin, like, the wet goblin graveyard. Right? No, seriously. I mean, that's, it's, it's, isn't it interesting what happens at the end? Our three-world system collapses. The, the downstairs world is flooded and almost disappears. And what part of it doesn't disappear changes. Most of the goblins die. Many of those who don't die leave. And those who stay change. And like ungoblinify over the next years. Right? As their heads get smaller and softer and their feet get harder and they become more like people. I actually had a question about that specifically. Um, are we given any reasoning as to why? Or was it just McDonald trying to tie up loose ends and we're not supposed to question it? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know if we're supposed to question it, but we're certainly not given an answer whether we question or not. Uh, just as we weren't on the first day. Right? I mean, we were never told he deliberately, he was overtly coy about answering the question, how did they, just by moving underground, how did they become all deformed and goblinified in the first place? Right? No answer. We're given to that question. And so, no answer. He seems not even to uh, recognize, we're going to expect an answer to that. At the end, you know, on the last page, or second to last page, when we're told it. Do you have a theory? Nope. nope. None, whatever. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons I think that this is so difficult to theorize about is it leads me, anyway, to the bigger question. Is the underground world a magical world or not? Are the goblins magical creatures? Because, of course, we're, I mean, they're given their human origins and their human... Uh, I don't know what destiny endpoint. I mean, the return to humanity at the end, sort of. No, I don't know. But anyway, given this, are we to see this as just natural? They're subnatural. Like the creatures are called subnatural, right, as opposed to supernatural. But but is there magic? I mean, given the lack of causal explanation that we're given, he seems to by the possibility of a magical interpretation. Um, but we don't know. We don't know who's magic and how. But it's, it's, I, I just think it's one of those things that we're not, it's not really explained very clearly and that I guess in a sense we're not supposed to ask about or at least to recognize that we're not going to be told the answer. Jordan? Um, they explicitly don't become human. They become brownies through a type of fairy creature. So I, I think it's... I don't think it ends really clear because there's a lot that's not clear about why they become brownies or how they become brownies, but I think it's pretty clear that they're at least at the end magical and not human. So, so I mean, whether the middle stage the yellow stage was magical Is this like an evolutionary process then? Human to goblin? I mean, possibly. I mean, if, if, if I had to guess, I would go with... I, I, would, I would have to first have to presuppose origin to the, the, um the first chain, which I'm maybe it's the, the minds that they have changing their bodies change to fit them. Maybe they were always like these jerks who thought so much of themselves, and now they're like humble. So they and that's why they left in the first place. Yeah, yeah. 
and maybe the humble notes, they're less monstrous because they bloom not trust in their pride, but actually like look at you know how much they suck. And when they have uh, in my in my we don't have time to look at it in detail, but I'll at least make an allusion to my favorite of Curdie's songs. Curdie's songs, of course, are chiefly doggerel. I mean, they're just like nonsense rhymes that he makes up, mostly to do with mining uh, and sometimes to do with beating on goblins. Um, but there's that one poem in the middle, the one that he carefully crafts while he's in prison, um, which, which I, for me just kind of pops out because it's so different from the other songs that he sings. The one that jams No, it's, it makes him really mad, but he's singing it when he's inside the prison. Um, it's the one about goblin souls where he's punning on S-O-L-E and S-O-U-L and you know how, how can they have souls sir when they have no soul um, th- anyway th- that sort of one poem is one of the ones that I think is really interesting as a poem and uh, uh, certainly seems relevant uh, that is if he is at all correct uh, to this question of uh, you know gob- goblin nature I must let you go. Uh, next time, Smith of Wooten Major. That's all for this episode of Fairy and Fantasy. Next time, Professor Olson will start his discussion of J.R. Tolkien's Smith of Wooten Major. Please read pages 9 to 34. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.